Friends, as we come to God's word now, a reminder that we have a service, a, a sermon outline with lots of blanks for you to fill in. And uh, I'm assured that this is useful for many of you. So if you'd like to do that, then take that out now. And I'm going to lead us in prayer. Our gracious Father, we are so thankful that you speak to us by your word. What a wonderful joy it is to know you and that by your spirit you might show us how it is that we might follow you. And we pray that you would do that now as we come to this challenging part of the Bible from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, some of the most painful wounds are from so-called friendly fire. Uh, it's an expression from war that describes it being shot at by people from your own side. But, but friendly fire isn't just about actual bullets from fellow soldiers. You can also describe the emotional wounds that come from conflict with the people who are closest to you. And it's painful when, when our friends call us, uh, cause us pain. It's painful when family members cause us pain. And it's painful when fellow believers in church cause us pain. And that's the bit here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that's being addressed tonight. It starts off by saying this. When one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? That's what the whole first half of this passage is about today. It's about dealing properly with disputes between Christians. And uh, spoiler alert, the, the solution is don't take them to the secular courts. That's a fairly specific matter, obviously, but... For the Corinthian church in the first century, it was a big issue for them, and we'll find out why in a moment. After that, Paul, who wrote the letter, talks about 10 activities that Christians must avoid at all costs, because they're things that people do who are not in the kingdom of God, things that people did before they followed Jesus. And so we'll look at those in a moment. But first, let's look at this issue of dealing with conflict within the church. It comes right after the chapter before, where Paul rebuked the Corinthians for accepting some shocking behaviour. Uh, I spoke on this passage in the week before Christmas. Remember that? A long time ago. Well, from chapter 5, verse 1, it said this. Remember this? It says, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. The Christians in Corinth thought, yeah, that's okay. Whereas even the pagan Romans were saying, Ugh, that's just not on. What has happened is that the Corinthians have accepted this sin. And so Paul tells them, you've got to make that person realise how serious this actually is. And he's got to be able to know this so that he'd be able to repent from it. The bigger problem, really, though, was that these guys weren't taking sin seriously. They weren't judging sin and sinners properly. And so the last bit of the chapter from before said this. Chapter 5, 12 and 13. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. 
Basically, Paul's saying to these Christians in Corinth, you need to make judgments about believers. And so, in the same way, God is telling us tonight, we need to make judgments about believers. Now, it's not so that we'll all become judgmental. Judgmentalism is horrible and it is not Christian and we're not to do it. It is so that people will be, well, we all will be so loving that we will be prepared to help others know how to change and so that our community will keep working towards holiness, not towards sin. And this is a very countercultural thing for us to do. Our society says, you do whatever you like, you have any values you want, you do any behaviour you like, oh, except the behaviours we know you can't do, but you, know, but you, you just need to be free to do whatever you like. And, and we in our church are a church that has its doors wide open. And we say, no matter who you are and what you've done and where you come from, you are welcome to be with us here. We are, we are radically inclusive in that sense. Come on in, be part of our church. But we are not a social club. We are a church. And we say, as you come to Christ, you can't stay the same. None of us do, none of us will. And that involves us being lovingly honest with each other. Lovingly honest. We need to be people who will recognise our sin so that we'll lovingly help each other to stop sinning. I don't know if you've ever done that to someone before. If you're a person who's been following Jesus for a while and, and you've got a friend or a family member or someone who follows Jesus and you've gone up to them and says, can I just say to you that I love you but I'm concerned by the way that you're speaking. Or I love you, but I, I'm concerned by the way that you're acting in this particular area. I, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to do that, and it can be a pretty confronting thing, can't it? A pretty bold thing to do. But it's not foreign to us. I mean, coaches do that when they're coaching someone. They say, you're, you're holding the bat incorrectly. You need to change your grip. And people do, and they, they score more runs or... or or it's what teachers do. They, they get the assessments and they tick, 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 cross, circle, come and see me afterwards. You think, oh, you get it back and you think, why do they not like me? No, they like you. They're saying to you, you got that wrong, you made a mistake, and I want to help you so that next time you get a question like that, you'll get it right. We need to be like that in our community. And it can be uncomfortable and it can be difficult. But we need to be people who normalise judging between believers. Normalise it. Because it's actually a loving thing to do. And to make it work, we personally, individually, need to be willing to be judged and corrected. It's got to start with us. So that if someone does come up to you and say, I'm concerned, my dear brother, by the way that you've been speaking. I, I'm hearing you say some swear words quite a bit and I just, just don't think that's the Christian way forward. We need to be ready to say... Thank you, I'm sure that was a hard thing for you to say to me, but I thank you that you love me that much, that you point that out, and so thank you and I will listen and I, with the help of God, will seek to do as you say. That, friends, is what a healthy, loving church will be like. And it starts with each of us individually, doesn't it? A healthy, loving church judges well. And that is why... This next bit of behaviour that we look at at the start of chapter 6 is just so wrong. Because it says this. 
when one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking to other believers? What's happened? Well, one of the Christians has taken another one of the Christians to court. It's not over a criminal thing, right? Like being taken to court because someone's assaulted somebody or stolen something or a speeding fine or something like that. It's not about a criminal matter. It's about a civil matter. It's about things where you know one person might sue another person because they want to claim damages from them or they might say... Um, you've taken my thing or you've damaged my thing and they use the secular courts or, or a doctor or a lawyer or a specialist may not have picked up something and then you got really sick and they say, well, I want to get some compensation. All that sort of stuff is the, is the civil course, the courts. And there are many other examples as well. And what appears to have happened here is one Christian has taken the other Christian to court and has gone to this non-Christian judge and said, will you please settle these matters for us? I hope you can see that this is a problem. Let's imagine one of us lent a car to somebody. You say, hey, yeah, borrow my car, that's cool. And they return the car, and as you get, into, you get your car, but you look at it, and you see there's a, there's a big smash in the corner. The, the, the light at the back has been smashed since they've had it. You think, oh... That's a bit rough. So you, you go up to them and you, you say, hey, I hope you enjoyed borrowing the car, but what happened with the brake light? Uh, nothing. Uh, I, I changed the topic. Mate, you've, you've damaged my car. Uh, and what do you do? Do you lawyer up? Well, what if you say to a person in church, uh, I need a bit of help because I lent my car to my mate and he's gone and smashed up the thing and he doesn't think it's an issue and he doesn't want to talk about it, doesn't want to deal with it. And I, I'm, I know he's done the wrong thing. Do you agree? Yeah, I think he's done the wrong thing. Can we go together and talk to him? And so you do. You say, mate, yeah, yeah. And he says, no, 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 you're overreacting. It's nothing. I don't care about it. Well, the next thing really to do is to say, well, we need to bring it to the whole church. So friends, so-and-so borrowed the car, smashed it up, hasn't done anything, it's actually been quite rude in pushing this person away and not dealing with it. And so to then bring that message from the church to that person and say, listen, we, we think that there's a problem there. And that person says, nah, you're wrong, you're all wrong. The most loving thing we can do is say, listen, I think the way you're reacting is if you don't know Jesus, is if you're not a follower of Jesus at all. It's a big worry and we're worried, not so much for the car, but we're worried about the fact that you may not be friends with Jesus, as you say you are, because you're not living like it. And I'm worried that if Jesus returns today, or you go to be with him straight away, unexpectedly, you're in a bad situation. You're going to hell. We're really worried. We love you that much. And hopefully they'll say, whoa, that's pretty intense. You're right. I'm wrong. And you know, here's a thousand bucks. Let's get the car fixed. And Jesus, I'm sorry that I lived that way. Because the whole process of that ends up us, to the disobedient, treating them as an unbeliever. If they're disobedient, you should treat them as an unbeliever. I, I think it's a pretty good system to go with. But you may have noticed it's not something I invented. It's something that Jesus came up with. He said in Matthew 18, If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offence. And if the other person listens and confesses it, good stuff. You've won that person back. 
But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by one or, two, one or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the court. And then if he or she won't accept the church's decision and fix the car, uh, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. That's kind of how it's supposed to work. Jesus came up with it, and it makes a whole lot of sense. He's certainly not saying, you know, if a brother sins against you, lawyer up. It's, no, it's not the way. We're not supposed to drag our fellow believers to the secular courts. We're supposed to deal with those civil matters in-house. Now, I'm not talking about criminal matters, right? Where, where someone's broken the law. I'm talking about the civil things like property ownership and defamation and liability and all those sorts of things. Jesus made it clear we've got to sort those things out ourselves. But Jesus didn't stop just there. He went on to say in Matthew 18, verse 18 onwards, he says, I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are gathered together as my followers, I am there among them. In other words, when Christians judge like Jesus says, Jesus says that our Heavenly Father is involved. And Jesus is in fact present amongst us, with us. It seems that judging Christians is actually part of our core responsibility as Christians. Judging is what Christians are destined to do. We're created to judge. And we're going to keep judging until Jesus returns. And that's what Paul now tells them in Corinth. He says, question two, don't you realise that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you're going to judge the whole world, can't you decide even these little things? amongst yourselves so the reason we've got to just deal with our own disputes is because God has said I want you to judge the universe with me when, when, I, when Jesus returns that's a pretty big thing so get into practice do it yourself and surely we're better off at judging than non-Christians and that's the point of verse 3 he says don't you realise that we will judge angels so you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. And I think by judging angels, he's talking about the evil angels, the spiritual beings who have disobeyed God. Now, we don't know all the details about what he's referring to. There are a couple of bits of the Bible, like Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 2, talk about the believers judging and ruling the world. There's a bit in the New Testament in the book of Jude, and 14 and 15 says, The Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on the people of the world. Whatever it is that we'll be doing, when Jesus returns, we will be busy judging and we'll be busy ruling with him. And so if that's what we're going to be doing, if that's our big job for the future when Jesus returns, then get practising. Get into it. Do it now. We should be very well equipped to do it amongst ourselves, in-house, by God's people. But that's not the only reason. Verse 4. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why to go to outside judges who are not respected by the church? These judges are not people that the church says that they don't know Jesus. They're not respecting them. They don't have standing in the church. 
And, and you can see why it's just crazy that they deal with our own squabbles. In fact, Paul is so shocked that he actually says that it's shameful. Verse 5, he says, I am trying, I'm saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who's wise enough to decide these issues? You take it to the secular courts, it shows the church doesn't respect its own people. Taking these civil cases to secular courts is shameful. And it shows that they think so poorly of their fellow believers that they think, well, we'd rather take the matter to the people who don't know Jesus, to the secular courts, to the secular judges, those who would not have respect within our church. But there's more problems. Verse 6. He says, But instead, one believer sues another right in front of unbelievers. Now, what's his next problem with it? It's because it looks so, so bad to those people who don't yet know Jesus. If we have a message that is genuinely transformational, if we truly believe that if you confess your sins to God, that he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and that he will, he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we really, really believe that, that we have a certainty for eternity because of the power of Jesus' death, why would we then say, oh, but we don't have enough power to deal with our own squabbles? Makes us look really, really bad. And we want to look really, really good. Why? Because we want people to know Jesus like we do. But more than that, when the church is shamed, so is God. When we do stuff that shames the church, it drags God's name through the dirt. There are so many things that Christians have done that are shameful. It breaks our hearts when we see the pain in the people who were protesting this last week at the funeral of George Pell. The, the, what must have brought them to have such sadness and anger in that situation? It must make us sad. Sexual misconduct and abuse by church leaders is disgusting. It is shameful. And sadly, every denomination has been guilty of this at one time or another. And it is shameful that it took so long for the churches to deal properly with these horrible sins. In and of themselves, they are horrible sins that should never have ever happened. But even though they are acts of evil, they're also a disgusting betrayal of trust. Now, irrespective of, of anything related to George Pell, what he did or didn't do and all that sort of stuff, just observing that situation, we see a public outcry that reminds us of how churches have acted shamefully and how the reputation of the church has been damaged so much. Because the church has been shamed by sexual abuse. And before I move any further, I want to remind you that our church here has a, a zero-tolerance policy for sexual abuse in the church. If you want to report something or speak to someone about something that happened in the past, you can go to our Jamboree Anglican website and if you go to the resources tab, you can see that there's a link there that takes you, it's called Zero Tolerance for Abuse and Misconduct and that will take you to the Safe Ministry website of the Diocese of Sydney. Please visit, please speak to them, please help us as we seek 
to pursue zero tolerance and genuine love. Sexual abuse and misconduct's got to stop because it's horrific and sinful, but it brings shame to the church, which brings shame to Jesus. But I, I do want to say something just at this moment, just in case you mishear or possibly might mishear anything I'm saying. I'm not saying that where there is sexual abuse in the church, where there's these crimes and so on, that we need to keep it in-house and deal with it ourselves. No, no, no. I'm talking about that with, with civil stuff, you know, suing and stuff like that. This is criminal stuff. And criminal stuff needs to go before the criminal courts. It needs to go to the police. They need to be involved. They need to follow it through. We, we cannot keep this to ourselves at all. Just need to get those categories very, very clear. Well, after that bit of a sidestep there that I really wanted to just bring up, we now, in verse 7, see why our squabbling in the civil courts is contrary to how we should live. Verse 7. It says, even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Oh, really? You want me just to cop it? You want me just to accept that injustice? You want me just to turn the other cheek? Ever heard of someone who has accepted an injustice? Well, Isaiah 53 speaks of someone who had done no wrong, verse 9, and had never deceived anyone, but he was just buried like a criminal and put in a rich man's grave. Who's this talking about? Talking about Jesus. He is someone who accepted injustice, who let himself be cheated. We know that nobody turned the other cheek like Jesus. And if that's how Jesus works for the good of others... And so should we. It means that if we lose something, if we are put out, if we're financially damaged or whatever, because we want the other person to be loved and we want to not have these squabbles, then if we do that because we're not pursuing our rights, we're doing what Jesus did. And he did it for our good because he took the punishment we deserved. I mean, he should have said, hey, Heavenly Father, I did nothing and you are punishing me for all these other people's things. It's not fair. It's unjust. How dare I get punished for everybody else? But that's just the point. And if he's our model, and if because of his life and death we've been accepted and forgiven, then that's going to affect the way that we relate to one another but there's even more to this it continues in verse 8 he says instead you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and you cheat even your fellow believers he kind of really twists the knife now if you sort of see what he's doing there now why is it that pursuing civil action in the secular courts does more than just being unwise it actually cheats people it actually does wrong why is that well it all comes down to the differences between the civil courts in australia today and the civil courts in first century roman empire those places were horrible and those places were only for the rich and powerful uh, if you wanted to have 
your rights fixed up and, and you wanted to get even with somebody, you could only do it if you were rich and powerful. And what's more, if you were really rich and powerful, you would get your way because you would bribe and you would have power and that you would have over those who are in the courts and so on. And so what you would do is you'd go to those courts because you wanted to get richer and richer. You wanted to really push those poor people under your thumb. And that's what those courts were like. But, but they're worse than that. It's reported in historical documents that the civil proceedings in the Roman Empire were, were full of horrible character assassinations. It was a mess. Uh, historian J.W. Jones said this of these courts. He said, quote, The advocate was permitted to use the most unbridled language about his client's adversary or even his friends or relations or witnesses. You could, it was just on like Donkey Kong. It was just an absolute chaos of just squabble and cesspit. Uh, in fact, Rosner and Camper in their commentary say, quote, Civil litigation was inevitably vexatious. It's little wonder that the church in Corinth suffered strife, jealousy and discord with members entangled in such circumstances. <laughs> you think? It's like you go to that kind of place with someone from your church and you take off the gloves and it's kind of like mixed martial arts right there before a judge with your mouth and everything else. It's like, oh, how are those Christians looking to the world? Oh, we're looking sweet. It's disgusting. Uh, it's bad enough for us to take someone to a, a civil court in Australia at this time, but first century, are you serious? That's why Paul's so shocked by them, and that's why he says that it is shameful. Think about it. Going into this court like you have two gladiators ready there to kill each other, and you're Christian, you follow Christ, it's disgusting. And what's more, if you're doing it to get wealthy, so you can screw over those Christians, the other Christians, to get more money from them, you should be ashamed of yourself. And that's what he's saying here. Because they are actually getting wealthy at the expense of Christians. Can you see why this is a problem? These are not things you do when you're a believer. You don't drag other Christians before a horrible court so you can take more of their money unjustly. Are you serious? And if you do that, and you keep doing that, and you see nothing wrong with it, then I don't think you're a Christian at all. And that's why this last little bit, Paul says... Don't you realise that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? You, you want to try and take them to court so you can get a bit more money, but in doing so, you miss out on the greatest inheritance of all, inheriting the kingdom of God. If you keep cheating people and you do it over and over again and you don't see it's a problem, then you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not truly saved. You're in a perilous spiritual situation. Uh, just like... If a person goes to church and they say, look, it's fine and good to steal from people over and over again, to be corrupt, and it's fine to get drunk all the time, and it's fine to have a deep greed so that all the time you're seeing what other people have got and that just burns you up inside with what you want from, what, from that. And, and, and committing adultery, that's okay. No worries. Just... A little bit, maybe, you know? And all these things. If you're a person who thinks all those things, you're not in the kingdom of God. 
If you think it's fine and you do it over and over again, there is a very, very serious warning here. You can't be in the kingdom and yet live like an unbeliever. You can't do it. You can't do it over and over again and say, I'm fine, because you're not. We are not. They are not. And someone thinks they can. They're just fooling themselves. Verse 9b, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. The ten things that people keep doing if they're not in the kingdom of God. Sort of like the ten anti-commandments, kind of. If you follow the Lord Jesus, if you're in the kingdom of God, then you should do everything you possibly can to avoid doing all these things. If you're feeling greedy and you keep being greedy, you've got to say, Lord, please help me to stop being greedy. You should live your life hating every time you say something abusive. It's like, oh, Lord, I did it again. I'm so sorry. Or, or when you're drunk, you say, oh, I did it again. I'm so sorry, Lord. Or when you cheat or lie or, or when you worship the stuff that God's made rather than God himself. And you should hate the thought of committing any kind of sexual sin like adultery or male prostitution or homosexual acts. And that is why we must not and cannot bless the sin of homosexuality and same-sex marriage any more than we should bless acts of abuse or acts of theft. To think that Christian ministers are standing up in front of churches blessing same-sex relationships and in some places conducting same-sex marriages, that's shocking. How can Christians bless what is sin? For we cannot bless what God calls sin. Tomorrow, the General Synod of the Church of England begins a four-day conference in which they make big decisions about things. And I think they have a decision before them that has the potential to change the history of the global Anglican Church. They are discussing this week a document that has been released by the House of Bishops, and in that document, it says this. Let me quote. Bishops joyfully affirm and want to acknowledge in church stable, committed relationships between two people, including same-sex relationships. That's from the House of Bishops in the Church of England. It's being discussed tomorrow. Imagine if the document said the same thing about acts of adultery. Bishops joyfully affirm and want to acknowledge in church adultery or any of those other things. Bishops joyfully affirm greed, joyfully affirm abuse. You know, unless there's an extraordinary movement of God's Holy Spirit through the Church of England this week, I think it may well be the end of the Church of England as we know it. There's a movement called GAFCON, you know, that I'm involved with. Uh, Mandy and I are actually going over to Africa in two months' time to the next one of the big five-yearly conferences. And as we go there, we will be standing alongside people from all around the world, global Anglicans, encouraging each other to stand firm in the Scriptures and to defend the truth and not to bless what is sinful, 
And so we would love your prayers and pray for our global Anglicans. And with all of this, I want to say that if you have committed any of those sins, Jesus will forgive you. The doors are open. And he says, come to me and I will forgive you. If you're standing outside the kingdom of God and you know it, I'm speaking this to you now and you know it in your heart, I'm not in the kingdom of God because I love those things, but I actually hate them now. Then you need to come to Jesus and say, I want you to be my king. And I'm sorry I turned from those sins. And he will say to you, I love you, I welcome you, I forgive you, you are my dear child. As I was preparing this, I could not but think of the thief on the cross. Right? There's one guy standing, hanging there behind, beside Jesus. He is so guilty of stuff that he is being executed with, the, with capital punishment. And he turns to Jesus and he makes it very clear that he knows that Jesus is not being punished for what he's done. He's being punished for what they've done. And he turns to him and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns to him and says, truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. As a man who was a criminal, and he says to Jesus, I am sorry, will you be my king? And Jesus says, yes. Just ask, and Jesus will forgive you. There is place in God's kingdom for anybody who turns to him. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, anyone in our world, open those doors and come to Jesus. And when we've done that, have a look at the after. 1 Corinthians 6.11. Some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed. Washed. You were made holy. You were made right with God. And it happened by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus brings core transformation. There's nothing he cannot change. If you come to him and say, Jesus, will you be my king? He says, I love you and yes, yes I will. That is how the Holy Spirit turns our lives upside down. And that is why... It's just inconceivable that we would just drag our fellow people to the secular courts, especially when they were like the cesspit of first century Corinth. Everything changes when you follow Jesus and we do it all for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel. We will love and serve others, even if it's costly, so that the world might taste and see that the Lord is good. That's why we do it. And we pray that we'll be a a place where there's no friendly fire that will deal with our conflicts well, will speak lovingly to each other, we will judge in love, that we will receive judging as love, deep love that seeks our best, that we might live a life of love where we lead and judge knowing that this is our destiny as God's people, to lead with him the world he rules. Because in the end, my worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross.